Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. Good morning. Uh, hey, a few more people showed up. That's cool. All right. Um, well, I'm happy to be here for the a second time for preaching a second my second sermon to you. Uh, I think the first one back in November sometime. But uh, um, and what I'll be preaching on today is Luke seven thirty six to fifty. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. It's Luke seven thirty six to fifty. I'll read it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this account in Luke is fairly well known, and on the surface, it seems like a pretty simple and straightforward story. But as I was studying, studying it, preparing this sermon, I found it to be more complex and far more profound than I first thought. I think it has a lot of wisdom and can provide much useful insight into our own, into our own hearts and attitudes towards God and towards others. So I'm excited to get into it with you this morning. Now, this story in Luke is similar to stories recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, where the woman comes to Jesus, where a woman comes to Jesus and anoints him with ointment. But from everything I can tell, it appears this event in Luke is different, than a different event than recorded in the other three Gospels. The passage we're looking at today in Luke takes place earlier in Jesus' ministry, when he was in Galilee, possibly in a town called Nain. The accounts in the other three Gospels take place later in Jesus' ministry, when he was down in Bethany, near Jerusalem. The accounts in Matthew and Mark say that the woman anointed Jesus' head. And John said it was Mary Magdalene who did it. And all three described Judas Iscariot's objection to what she did by asking why the ointment wasn't sold and the money given to the poor. You may remember. And all, and all three record Jesus' response to Judas to not to trouble her, to not trouble her, and that you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me, and that she has done it to prepare Jesus for his burial. And all of that is different, obviously, than the account we have in Luke. So this story recorded here 
seems to be a unique event with different characters, takes place at a different place and time, and it has a different point. So in this narrative in Luke, we have three main characters, Simon the Pharisee, the woman, and Jesus. And the Pharisee and the woman each approach Jesus very differently, and Jesus therefore responds to each of them very differently. So let's look first at what I call the repentant sinner's approach to Jesus. We see that our story starts out with a certain Pharisee inviting Jesus to his house for dinner. And Jesus accepts and goes to the house and reclines at table. So there's Jesus eating dinner at the Pharisee's house. Then we are introduced to the woman. In verse 37 it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Okay, let's stop there for a second. What did Luke mean here when he singles her out this way by calling her a sinner? He doesn't say that about any of the others in the story. Doesn't it say elsewhere in the Bible that all have sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God? So why was she alone called a sinner? It's true that she was a sinner. Jesus said that she had many sins. But as you read through the Gospels, you see that this, this term sinner was basically a label that was commonly used to describe a certain category of people. For example, in Luke 15, 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, i.e. Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It was a category used to describe immoral people like thieves and prostitutes and also Gentiles. Basically anyone who was supposedly rejected of by God. And the reading religious class of the day probably came up with these labels and looked down on these sorts of people as dirty, lowly, and unworthy. And of course, the Pharisees and scribes put themselves in a higher category. They were the ones who were learned, who followed the law and all their traditions, and because of that, they believed they were accepted by God. So this woman was viewed by all around her as belonging to that lowly group of tax collectors and sinners. She had a reputation. Other than that, we don't know very much about this woman. Okay, back in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. We first observe that once she learned where Jesus was, she came directly to him without delay. And the implication there is that she was looking for him, seeking him out. Since it says when she learned that he was at XYZ location, it suggests that she had wanted to know where he was. So it seems like she's looking for him. She wants to know where he is. Because as soon as she learns where he is, she goes straight to him, bringing a jar of oil or perfume. And she knew that Jesus was in the middle of dinner at someone else's house, but she didn't wait for him to finish. She went to where he was right away, even though he was in the middle of something and even though she wasn't invited. And as we will see, she wasn't very welcomed by the host or his other guests either. Now, it says when she found Jesus, she stood behind him at his feet. Well, why behind? And I always used to think that Jesus was sitting in a chair at a table, and she would have to, how, how could she get behind him at his feet? Was she under the chair? Was she kind of the side? Because this weird image. But no, this is because in this culture, when they reclined at table which is what they're doing at this dinner, they would be laying down on their side with their heads pointed toward the middle where the food was. 
eating with their free hand, and their feet would point out from the center like spokes on a wheel. So his, his, his feet was the easiest accessible point. And as she's standing there behind his feet, she's weeping. And, I mean, this poor girl, she's just standing there crying. But then she does three things for Jesus. Number one, she cleanses his feet by using her own tears and by wiping them with her hair. Number two, she kisses his feet. Number three, she anoints them with the ointment she brought, which is either an oil or perfume, we're not sure, uh, and possibly expensive. So, so she does these things for Jesus, and she's weeping as she's doing them. The question at this point is, why is she doing this? Why did she go interrupt Jesus during dinner to go do these things? Well, it seems we're missing the first part of her story. And what prompted her to do this? We don't know, we know she was labeled a sinner, but we don't know why. We don't know what her sins were, only that she had a poor reputation because of them. And she knew enough about who Jesus was to desire to find him. Now, some of the commentators theorize that she had heard his preaching earlier, and by it was convicted of her sin and came to believe that Jesus could forgive her. So her weeping is due to her brokenness over sin. Over her sin, she is sorry for what she has done. But also thankfulness that Jesus has offered forgiveness for her sin. Now, where it says she was weeping, the Greek word used here is uh, often used for weeping due to sadness or mourning. So I think it's possible that she knew Jesus had to suffer and die in order to procure her forgiveness. This would possibly explain why she anointed Jesus with ointment. In the other gospel accounts where Mary Mary Magdalene anoints Jesus, she does it to prepare him for his burial. And it's quite possible this woman is doing it for the same reason. So I think her weeping is a mixture of godly sorrow and remorse over her sins, thankfulness for the offer of forgiveness, and a mourning over the fact that this man would have to suffer and die in order to secure that forgiveness. So summarizing, how did this woman approach Jesus? I see six aspects that characterize how she approached him. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. One, she came to him immediately, as soon as she learned where he was, without delay. So she came immediately. Two, she came to him boldly, bucking social conventions with no regard for what others thought of her. She came boldly. Three, she also came humbly. She came to serve him, performing tasks normally reserved for lowly servants. She showed humility to him by putting herself in subservience and submission to Jesus by her acts of service and love. And she showed humility by offering no defense for herself, even though she likely knew what the others at the dinner party thought of her. So she came in humility. Four, she came in repentance, obviously, acknowledging her sin, not trying to hide the fact that she needed forgiveness. So she came in repentance. Five, she came to Jesus in complete vulnerability, wearing her emotions on her sleeve. I mean, more than that, they were dripping down her face onto Jesus' feet. And from what, we can, from what we can tell, she didn't say anything at all, but she communicated volumes by her actions. And by coming to Jesus when she did, she opened herself to attack and judgment by others, which they did. So she came vulnerably. But six, most importantly, she came with deep love and profound thankfulness to the one who loved and forgave her. So she came in love and thankfulness. 
And in all of these things, she exhibits what I would call uh, godly brokenness. Take a drink of water real quick. You're doing a great job, man. Now, not just any sinner could come to Jesus in this way, nor would they. The key is that they are a repentant sinner. Someone in active rebellion against God who still loves their sin will not approach God like this, for one. And if they try to approach him without owning up to their sin, he wouldn't really he wouldn't accept them. First John one nine to ten says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we we make him a liar, and his word is not not in us. Now later in the book later in the book of Luke in Luke fifteen, and you may remember this is the passage I mentioned earlier where the tax collectors and sinners were gathering to Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, grumbling about it. Jesus responds to the Pharisees grumbling here by telling several parables, one of which was the parable of the prodigal son. It's a famous story most of us have probably heard. The prodigal son was the younger of two sons who demanded his portion of his inheritance from his father and went and squandered it all in reckless and wild living. He, like the woman in our story, was a sinner. They are similar in that their sin is out there for all to see. It wasn't hidden. It was pretty obvious and explicit. But he also repented in a similar way to the woman. As soon as he came to himself and realized what he was doing, he immediately started heading back to his father. He came humbly, admitting that he was no longer worthy, worthy to be called his father's son, but rather asked his father that he may um, make him like one of his hired hands. He came admitting that he had sinned against heaven and against his father. He came vulnerably. Certainly it would not have been easy to return to his father after what he did. He left himself open to attack from, from his father and his other relatives. And though it's not stated in the parable, I think it's safe to say that after his father accepted him back so graciously, far beyond what the son expected, that he would have had a deep thankfulness for the grace shown to him by his father and re, a rekindled love for him. Like the woman, the younger son had also been broken over his sin. Now, some, some friends of mine, um, a Christian couple who attend another church and have three, three boys, some years ago told me a story once uh, about when they were, they were coming home from some friend's house and they, they had to discipline their son because he was, he was disobeying. Um, so when they, what happened when they got home, it was at night, um, he had been told, you know, don't get out of the car until we come get you. But what he did, he, he jumped out right out of the car as soon as they parked and he ran out into the street. Um, and it was unsafe for him to do that. And they had told him he, he knew he was not supposed to do that, but he did it anyway. So they were, they were, they were trying to determine how to discipline him. They, you know, it was a serious thing. They need, you know, for his own safety, he needed to not be doing that kind of thing. And he knew he, sh he shouldn't, but it was, it was past the bed, the boy's bedtime. And they knew if they, you know, they disciplined him in the way that he needed to be, that, it would have been a big ordeal, you know, it had been a lot of crying and it would have taken a lot of time to console him and the boys, all the boys would have missed their bedtime by quite a bit. So they, they tried an idea they had heard from another Christian couple. They, they sat the boy down and explained, you know, to him why he disobeyed or what, what it was he disobeyed and why it was serious, why it was, he shouldn't be doing that and he knew better. Um, but then dad proceeded to lean over the counter as mom took a yardstick to dad's backside. Dad took the punishment that the kid deserved. 
And as the boy watched this, tenderhearted as he was, he broke down in tears and cried. Now, I'm not saying this is a great way to discipline your kids. <laughs> a new method. To, I'm not going to write a book about it or anything. But the couple, and the couple only used it that one time. They admit it was a good teachable moment, not something they, they did um, as normal way to discipline their, their kids. In fact, the reason they didn't, one of the reasons, it was actually too traumatic for him. <laughs> um, and that's not the point anyway. The, the point is, is it illustrates what a legitimate and honest res- to, responsible to the gospel does look like. A broken, a broken-hearted response to your sin. I disobeyed my parents, but instead of receiving the punishment that I deserved, my dad uh, received the punishment I deserved. And this broke my heart. It made me sorry for what I had done, because my sin caused my dad to suffer. Now, if I were to state this from the perspective of the woman, it would sound something like like this: I disobeyed my God, and sinned and rebelled against Him. But instead of receiving the punishment that I deserved, this Jesus will suffer the punishment I deserve. And what a terrible punishment it will be. And this breaks my heart and makes me sorry for what I have done, because my sin caused my God to suffer. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So I pray we'd all learn from the example of the woman who, like the prodigal son, came to Jesus immediately, boldly, yet humbly, repentant, vulnerable, and thankful. Now, in contrast, now that we've looked at how the woman approached Jesus, how did the Pharisee approach Jesus? He starts off by inviting Jesus to his house for dinner. So, okay, he wants to host Jesus uh, at his place. Step. Obviously, he had heard about Jesus and likely heard some of the things being said about him. Um, he possibly even heard some of Jesus preaching. And now he's inviting Jesus over and wants to show some hospitality to, to him. But it tends to go downhill from there. As we read the narrative, we see that the Pharisee, whose name was Simon, turned out to, to not be very hospitable to Jesus after all. He did not give him any water to wash his feet. He did not offer him a kiss, probably a kiss on the cheek, and offered no oil for his head, all of which were common things in that culture that you would offer in order to show hospitality to your guest. Like today, if you invited someone to your house, you would offer to hang up their coat for them in your closet. You would offer them a beverage and show them where the bathroom was and where they could wash their hands uh, before eating. But Simon did none of these kind of things for Jesus. You know the saying we often use when we host guests over to our place? Just make yourself at home? Well, Simon didn't really make Jesus feel real at home. But Jesus was gracious and didn't say anything about this initially, not until he went to defend the woman. And Jesus had to defend her because when she came in, Simon looked down upon her and judged her to be one of those dirty sinners. And Simon judged Jesus for letting this sinful woman touch him. <laughs> Simon drew a conclusion about Jesus and decided that Jesus must not be a prophet because if Jesus was a prophet, he would certainly know who and what sort of woman this was, i.e. that she, she was an immoral woman, a sinner. Simon's assumption is that if Jesus knew this woman's reputation, then Jesus would not allow her to touch him. So how did Simon approach Jesus? 
Even though he invited Jesus to his house, he didn't make Jesus feel very welcome. I mean, if I were invited somewhere to someone's house but knew that I would be treated with that kind of inhospitality, I think I'd prefer not to go. It kind of makes you feel disrespected. And then when Simon, and then when the woman came in, Simon judged her. And when he observed what she did for Jesus, he judged Jesus for letting her touch him and demoted him in his mind to not a prophet. Kind of makes you wonder why Simon invited Jesus to his house in the first place if he was going to be such a poor host to Jesus and then sit there in judgment of him. My, my theory is that he was testing Jesus. He wanted to see him up close and put him under a microscope. The Pharisees were often trying to test Jesus, but Simon went about it in a little more subversive way. He had heard about this Jesus and wanted to use his considerable learning as a Pharisee to determine if Jesus was the real deal or not. This is still my theory, but what I get from the text. He'd heard the claims being made about Jesus and the people asking if he might be the Messiah or at least some kind of prophet. As a Pharisee, he had a certain preconceived notion of what the Messiah would be like, and he wanted to observe Jesus closely and decide for himself. And he decided that Jesus couldn't be a prophet because Jesus obviously didn't know the woman was a sinner, because, of course, if he did, then Jesus wouldn't let her touch him, supposedly. Now, if Jesus was not a prophet, he certainly could not be the Messiah. How did Simon approach Jesus? I see six aspects that characterize his approach to Jesus that contrasts with a woman's approach. One, he does not approach Jesus immediately. He does invite Jesus to his house, but he keeps it within socially accepted bounds. There's no rush. We'll set a date and a time. Yeah, Jesus, I think I can squeeze you into my busy schedule somewhere. We'll make it happen. Two, he doesn't necessarily come boldly. He certainly doesn't buck any social conventions in contrast with the woman. Three, he doesn't come humbly. He's going to host Jesus, the hot new celebrity on a block, the, everyone, the one everyone's talking about these days. Wow, you're friends with Jesus? Oh yeah, he and I go way back. Except his hospitality just barely met the minimum requirements. He hosts Jesus at his place to eat, but there's no warmth in his welcome. Also, he doesn't submit himself under Jesus. He feels he's at least an equal with him. Jesus may be a rabbi, but he's no prophet, and I'm a Pharisee after all. For he does not come in repentance. He doesn't admit of any sin. He's a Pharisee, not one of those lowly sinners. He's not coming to Jesus to request forgiveness for anything because he doesn't think he has anything needing forgiveness. Five, he doesn't come vulnerably. He has an opinion about Jesus, but he doesn't express it. He keeps it to, he keeps his thoughts close to his chest. And six, obviously there is not much love nor thankfulness. Thankful for what? Jesus should thank him for the invite in the dinner. Now, my, my point in examining Simon's approach is to Jesus is not so that we all learn the ten ways to avoid being a bad host to your dinner guests. The point is, is our heart like Simon's, half-hearted toward Jesus and ultimately inhospitable toward him? Or worse, are we fooling ourselves into thinking our hearts are welcoming to Jesus when in actuality they aren't? In the prodigal son parable, there was an older son who stayed with his father and didn't run away with his, with his inheritance like the younger son did. But this doesn't necessarily mean that he loved his father. After the younger son returned and repented of his life, his foolish life choices, it was, he was graciously welcomed back and his father threw a big celebration for him. However, when the older son found out about it, he became angry. 
He refused to go to the party even after his father asked him. He, he couldn't believe his father would forgive, quote, this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, there, there are many similarities between the older brother and Simon the Pharisee. The older brother also judged and looked down on the sinner, his younger brother. And he also judged the one who forgave the sinner and was completely disrespectful toward him. He was inhospitable and had no love in his heart for either the sinner or the one forgiving the sinner. Now, I, th- I think a question we all need to ask ourselves is, what is the attitude of our heart toward Jesus? Really and truly, what is it? Is it an attitude that admits of its rebellion toward the Lord and toward his Christ? Or are we in denial of our sinful rebellion? Do we see ourselves as we truly are? As Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which in whence we once walked. Or do we think we're doing pretty good on our own? and look down on those filthy sinners who obviously don't have it together? Do we admit to God and to ourselves that, just like them, we are lost without Jesus, or do we not? Now, having seen these two different approaches to Jesus, how does Jesus respond to each? Going back to the beginning of our story, we see that Simon invited Jesus to recline with him at table, and Jesus responds by accepting the invitation. And this is actually no small detail, because there's more here than just the setup for the story. Because Jesus knew beforehand everything that would happen, including Simon's poor hospitality and Simon's judgment of Jesus and of the woman. Yet Jesus accepted the invitation anyway. I think there's a lot of hope to be found in that, because it shows that Jesus still pursued Simon. He accepted his invitation, and he spoke firm words to him, words that Simon needed to hear. So when we are pharisaical, there's hope that Jesus won't just give up on us either. And we also see this in the story of the prodigal son. The the older son was acting like a Pharisee when he refused to go into the party. He was still sitting in judgment over his younger brother and mad at his father that he forgave the younger brother and that he threw a lavish party for him. But the father came out to the older son and tried to reason with him and wanted to see him come to the party. The father didn't say, fine, if he wants to be that way, then let him stay out there. But instead, he pursued his oldest son, who's acting like a Pharisee. Okay, back in our passage, after the woman has come in and anointed Jesus' feet, and Simon thinks his judging thoughts about it, we see that Jesus responds to Simon first. Jesus doesn't respond immediately to the woman's actions. He responds first to Simon's judging thoughts about the woman's actions. What's interesting is that when Simon thinks to himself that Jesus can't be a prophet, Jesus responds by proving that he is indeed a prophet and more. Simon doesn't say anything. He is keeping his thoughts to himself. But Jesus shows that he knows what Simon is thinking. And Jesus does so by telling a short parable. It's fairly obvious that the parable is comparing the woman and Simon. And in it, the woman is portrayed as the one who owed a larger debt, and Simon the smaller debt. Jesus acknowledges that the woman is a sinner, but she has rebelled, and that she has rebelled against God and has many sins. But Simon has debt too, even though he doesn't acknowledge it. After Jesus tells the parable, he asks Simon the pivotal question of the whole story. After the two debtors are forgiven by the money lender, which of them will love him more? And Simon gets it right. 
It's the one who was forgiven more. It is at this point that, si- that Jesus proves to Simon who it was who actually loved him more. Starting in verse 44, Jesus says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, when I was studying this passage, I came across two apparent difficulties that took some time for me to ponder, um, and they are related. The first is in the very next verse, verse 47, when Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. It sounds like he's saying that she was forgiven because she loved much. In other words, she loved first, and then Jesus rewarded her with forgiveness. But this doesn't seem to match up with Jesus' parable, where he says that the debtors were forgiven first. Then they loved the moneylender after, and because they were forgiven. This seems to be a translation issue from the Greek to English. And I think the NIV NIV actually does pretty well in its translation in this case. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. The study Bible notes and commentaries I consulted all seem to agree on this agree on this as well, that the, the forgiveness came first, and the, the receiving of forgiveness is what brought about the love. But the second difficulty is similar, because in the story itself, it does seem like she loves first and then is forgiven. In the passage, she comes to Jesus and anoints his feet, and then Jesus tells her that her sins are forgiven. So what's going on here? Well, as I mentioned before, we don't know her story leading up to this. She obviously knew of Jesus and knew enough that she had uh, she wanted to come and serve him in the way she did. It's possible she had heard Jesus preach before uh, and believed his word, believed that she could finally find forgiveness for her many sins and therefore came to him in thankfulness. Or I think it's also possible she had a personal encounter with Jesus before this and it's just not recorded in the scripture. She had she may have received forgiveness from Jesus at that time. And this passage is only recording her response to that. And Jesus is just confirming his forgiveness to her in front of Simon and his guests. Now, either one of these explanations maintain the order of, in Jesus' parable, of forgiven first, then love and response. After all, First John four nineteen says that we love because he first loved us. Now, having said all that, there is still something that differentiates the two, the woman and the Pharisee. What I mean is that in the parable, both are forgiven of their debt, but in the reality, we only see the woman being forgiven of her debt. In the end, Simon is the one who's actually left with the bigger debt because the woman's debt, though initially larger, was totally cleared away. Jesus explicitly says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, but he doesn't say anything like this to Simon. Why? Well, ultimately speaking, I believe that God in his good pleasure chose those from whom he would forgive before the foundation of the world. So a woman appears to be maybe elect, and for Simon perhaps not, or it's not clear. But I believe there's something in our passage that also helps explain why the woman was forgiven and one not. In Jesus' parable about the two debtors, there was one who owed a lot and one who didn't owe as much. In verse 42, it then says, When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Both debtors were unable to pay their debt, and at that point, they are forgiven of it. See, the woman admitted that she, that she had a debt, and a large one at that. And she, she admitted that she could not pay it. But Simon still thinks he could pay his debt. In fact, he probably thinks he's all caught up on any debt he might have by his observance of the law and his status as a Pharisee. But Simon fails to understand something. Let's say you own a small business and you've been doing it for 20 years and, and you've never paid any taxes. So you owe the government 20 years of back taxes. Now say that you resolve to start paying your taxes, but you're not making huge profit margins. And all you can afford for each year going forward is to pay your, your taxes for the current year. At this rate, will you ever be able to pay off those 20 year back taxes? Obviously, no, you will never, you will never catch up. Now let's say several more years pass by and your tax accountant comes to you and informs you there's been an error and you haven't been paying the full amount of current year taxes after all, even though you've been trying. So in reality, you're still falling more behind, guarding, garnering even, an even larger debt. And all the while, the IRS is charging you back taxes and late fees, or uh, late fees and interest on your back taxes. This is what it's like to try to earn your salvation by obeying the law. Even the most moral and law-abiding person is not able to live up to the perfection that the law demands of them in that moment. Never mind the huge past debt that we all have. And this concept is what Simon failed to understand. So we see that the woman who came acknowledging and admitting her sin, her debt, was completely forgiven of all of it, set free from it, and was able to, to leave in peace. Simon, on the other hand, didn't admit of any sin of debt. Rest assured, though, he was a sinner and a debtor. And he is not able to pay back what he owes and, and did not receive forgiveness from Jesus, not at that time anyway. Now, it's completely possible that sometime in the future, Simon does repent of his sins, does acknowledge his debt, and does realize that he is unable to pay it back. It's completely possible he comes to faith in Jesus, receives total forgiveness for his sin and debt at a later time. But the scripture doesn't tell us, and I believe there's a reason for that. It's the same with the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. His father comes out to him and pleads with him to come to the party for the younger son. But the parable ends there. We don't find out what the older brother does. Does he go to the party and celebrate his younger brother's return? Which, by the way, in doing so, he would be acknowledging and joining in his father's forgiveness of the other younger brother. And fellowshipping with his younger brother again would essentially equate to admitting that he's no better than him. It's very difficult to be in true fellowship with someone if you look down on them. Or does the older brother stay outside and stay in, his, in judgment of his younger brother and stay in angry with his father? Does he continue acting like a Pharisee? In both cases, in Simon's case and the older brother's case, we don't know what happens. We don't know which way they go. And there is hope in this because it seems in both cases the door is left open to them. As I mentioned before, I believe that ultimately God chooses, but we still have personal responsibility. Now, how those two work together is a subject for another sermon. <laughs> so yes, I think there's great hope to be found in Simon's story, but also a strong warning. A warning against a pharisaical heart and a pharisaical attitude. Because neither Simon nor the other older brother received forgiveness. At that time, they remained dead in their sins at the end of their respective story. Their main problem 
is that they are blind to their own sins. They think they are doing okay. They are focused on the other person's sins and don't realize or don't admit their own. For the woman and the younger brother, it's easy for them to see their sins. Their sins are explicit and obvious. Out there. They're out there. The danger of being pharisaical is it tends to blind you to the evil in your own heart. Now, if both of these stories ended by saying that the pharisaical one remained in their pharisaism for the remainder of their lives and died in their sin, we, that wouldn't leave much hope for us pharisaical types. And my wife and I, we both readily admit that we, we tend to identify more with the older brother, the pharisaical one. So the fact that these stories are, all, are left open-ended regarding Simon and regarding the older brother is where the hope comes in. But it is also a warning to all pharisaical types, because to be saved, they cannot remain as they are. They must see their own sin and debt, be honest about it and own up to it, admit their inability to pay that debt, and admit of their needs for a savior to pay that debt on their behalf. And it's hard to do all that when you're totally blind to your own sin. How do you know you are pharisaical like Simon? Do you acknowledge to yourself and to God that you are deeply indebted to him because of your rebellion against him? Do you freely admit of your sins against him and against others? Or do you think you're doing okay on your own? Do you admit that you are unable to pay back one iota of your debt, that you are or would be falling deeper into debt unless Jesus paid every back, paid back every little bit? Do you look down on certain people, those dirty sinners, and sit in judgment over them? Are you more focused, more, more focused on their sins? Or can you look at them, whoever it is who you view as a sinner, and acknowledge that you are just as depraved, just as wicked, and just as lost without Jesus as they are. So I, I pray we had all learned from the woman how to approach Jesus. I pray that we would see our deepest need, the need for forgiveness of our eternal debt to an infinite God, and would come to him without delay. I pray that we would come boldly to him in understanding that no one else's opinion matters, only his own. I pray we would come to him humbly, knowing that he is greater than us and knowing that we are just as much of a lowly sinner as anyone else. I pray we would come to Jesus in repentance, admitting that we have a massive debt due to our offenses against him and against others, and that we would come in great thankfulness that he offers us this forgiveness as free grace by his death for us sinners on the cross, knowing that he has fully accomplished it. Amen. Let me pray as I close. Father God, thank you for this day, this time. Um, thank you for the people here who um, who made it this morning. Pray for all those who are gone out on vacation and doing other things. Um, I pray you'd bless them as well. Um, uh, pray for uh, the rest of this service and pray we would uh, learn these things, Lord, and take them to heart. And uh, you'd be glorified ultimately in all of them. In Jesus' name, amen.